If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Weller Skin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Donna Weeks and Dave Woodard. Only five days until Christmas and Santa's on his way. Okay, guys, it's time to start assembling a plan. Here's Scott Thompson. Assembling a plan. I don't know. It's just the 20th. Still got a couple of days before you have to do that, no? I don't know. Maybe. uh, Although there is apparently some snow coming. So maybe that will alter your plans. Uh, Maybe just a little bit and uh, and get things going a little little quicker, guys. I don't know. I know, guys, it really seriously wait till... and one's on this radio station. Uh, wait till the very last minute, uh, literally Christmas Eve, and out they go. All right, enough of that. Good afternoon. It is uh, 308. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. Thanks for joining us. Glad to have you here. The whole gang's here. Uh, another sign we're getting close to the holidays. Also, this is pretty cool. If you're looking for something to do uh, in the coming days, uh, a giant winter maze coming to the Ancaster Fairgrounds. They've got food trucks, hot chocolate, DJs as well. Let's bring in Philip Suos, founder, managing director of the Giant Maze, and is with us now philip thanks for the time hope you're well yeah thanks uh thanks for the invite yeah doing well <laughs> so what is going on what, what is the giant winter maze what is this so the giant winter maze is literally going old school we have we are erecting a 120 foot by 120 feet um uh wooden maze uh it's built out of wood because of our what we term yo-yo weather uh during this uh, season hmm. Um, and yeah, so that's, uh, we have that plus a bunch of different attractions going on. Um, and so it takes the average person, you know, between, I would say half an hour to an hour and a half really to complete the maze, right? We have also different, uh, scavenger hunts for the kids uh, with prizes. Um, but yeah, it's a, a bunch of different activities going on. And how long has the giant maze been around? The giant maze is uh, it's actually new we actually um it was uh, it's actually a group of us of uh, uh parents that uh wanted to do something on the west end uh since uh, a lot of activities you know happened in the, the Toronto area and uh we wanted to do something that was new and uh we kind of went through all the logistics and believe it or not from the concept to the actual production of it uh literally took 2 weeks to do and so we we uh we knew of our our friends here at the grip block uh which really had that technology uh it's almost like a metal velcro for for wood and uh they've been doing different things with with their things uh like making skating rings and uh little things for for different companies and we we challenged them we're like well it's it's almost to to give you a general description it, it looks like lego but it's made out of wood so you can build anything. So we, we challenged them and, and asked them, can you build, you know, Ontario's largest outdoor winter maze? And uh, they they said, yes, we can do it. So uh, we're attempting that challenge right now. And, you know, it's our first goal of it. Uh, and if this works successfully, we're looking to grow this uh, even bigger uh, the following year. So uh, so get, first of all, give us the logistics, when it's all happening, all that, all, all the details. Yeah, so it's happening from uh, Boxing Day, so December the 26th, right till uh, January the 8th. Um, and it operates every single day from 11 o'clock a.m. to 4 o'clock p.m. with time slots on the hour every hour. And it's happening at Ancaster Fairgrounds. So you said anywhere from a half an hour to an hour and a half to get out. Are there lifeguards? Is there emergency exits if needed? <laughs> There's emergency exits. Plus, we also have uh, characters uh, that do meets and greets. But there also we have people on the inside of the maze uh, just making sure everybody is safe. <laughs> so if anybody is screaming, it's yeah, we, we can go get it. <laughs> <laughs> so h- how did you, who designed this? I mean, because, you know, uh, like I love the old, I love the idea of giant wooden Lego blocks. That's a great analogy. Uh, but still, somebody's got to design a maze. Where did that come from? Yeah, so actually, Grip Block themselves uh, designed the maze uh, themselves. And uh, 
so we have the, the blueprints for it. It took some time. Uh, so they're going to go from one end to the other. And like I said, there's scavenger hunts on the inside. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, we, it's all due to, uh, to Riplock. Uh, has it been tested? Are you sure we can get out? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we'll, we'll let you know. <laughs> all right. Well, there's going to be a few trial runs once it gets set up. So, all right, maybe I got less than a minute left here, Philip. So what else you got? You've got food trucks. Uh, obviously you're trying to make an event out of this in, in at the Ancaster fairgrounds. So I'm coming from Street Eats Market. So we're all known for our food trucks and our, our food festivals. And so we, um, so we're going to be bringing some of our, our food trucks down, uh, from the GTA down here. Uh, that includes like the smoke stop or a six spice rack who won the fried chicken fest. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're going to the hot chocolate bars for the kids, live music as well. Uh, we're going to have a marshmallow fire pitch that the kiddos absolutely love. Uh, different photo ops with character meets and greets and the big giant sign and a few other things. Uh, scavenger hunts, like I had mentioned before, with prizes. Perfect. And uh, the train rides, uh, the winter train rides. All right. Philip Suos with us, founder and managing director of the Giant Maze, uh, coming to Ancaster Fairgrounds on uh, Boxing Day for the next week or so after that, giving you something to do over the holidays. Philip, thanks for the time. Good luck. Yeah, thank you. We talked about this uh, a couple of days ago, and it's interesting that uh, when this sort of thing happens, how uh, quickly uh, we can fix it or react to it. Um, but the um, the Russian section, Soyuz section capsule of the International Space Station, um, it, it appeared to have a leak, and uh, it, it's uh, thought that perhaps a small piece of debris of some sort hit this and has created uh, this leak, and to the rescue, well, look at that, that robotic arm that was built uh, in Canada, uh, a part of all of this. Let's bring in Dr. Elena Hyde, Director, Alan Carswell, Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, and is with us now. Elena, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Absolutely, yes. Um, I mean, not looking forward to the storms coming up uh, on Earth, as you were mentioning earlier in this broadcast. Um, but I, I think, you know, all in all, we're looking at a much better um, temperature situation than, of course, they have up there on the ISS. It is a very interesting situation being in space as they are. Um, it is quite fun, you know, thinking about here in Toronto, we're looking at this sort of cold snap coming in. Um, currently around zero, I think one of your folks said, uh, but out there in outer space, we're looking at temperatures of minus 270 Celsius. Mm. Um, so it's a very extreme environment but you know, to Elena, one th the one thing, Elena, the big difference, no wind chill up there. I'm thinking no wind chill, right? <laughs> you wouldn't open the windows even if you could. <laughs> so. All right. So tell us what happened here. How did this thing spring a leak? Did something hit it? Well, they, they do think it did get an impact. The problem with low Earth orbit right now and a lot of the uh, the different satellites and things that are up in space is there's now so much space junk around. Uh, there's a real collision danger, not just from tiny little uh, particles. Um, they, they do actually think that the hole that was made is uh, something like a millimeter. So this is qualified as a large piece of something that would have impacted that Soyuz um, uh, capsule. It's a very hardy spacecraft. It should, it should be able to withstand small impacts. So they think something actually maybe a bit bigger did hit it. Um, they're not sure what, but it, with the amount of stuff up there, it could have been all kinds of things. Uh, and uh, first of all, uh, w this hit the Soyuz capsule, the Russian capsule at the space station or, or a portion of the space station. Explain what was hit and the relation to the rest of the space station. Yeah, so this is a, uh, a Soyuz MS uh, spacecraft, which is um, got, brought up to the space station, and that was what was hit. And they did have a an actual coolant leak on the the capsule um, as a result of this impact. And you, there are some great pictures. I'm not sure. Well, maybe not great. There are some pictures online <laughs> the the coolant being sprayed out into space. And since it's docked to the ISS. This is actually quite a hazard because the coolant is toxic ammonia and it's so cold in space, it comes in fr frozen. But if it gets on anything, so if an astronaut was to go out there and get some on their spacesuit and come back in, 
the ammonia would evaporate in the uh, in the ISS, and wow. it's very very toxic. So, it's definitely a um, a tense situation. However, they have been, as you say, working with Canada Arm 2, a wonderful, wonderful facility, um, you know, uh, a great, great follow up to Canada Arm 1. And it has been absolutely invaluable in terms of inspecting what damage was done. And if you can believe it, they're actually still considering using this spacecraft despite the damage um, to possibly bring back three passengers back to Earth. It would be a real nail biter, I'm sure. That would be my next question is, so this wasn't actually part of the space station that was hit. This was a capsule that takes them up and back. So do they stay in this or is this just a transportation device and then they, they stay aboard the ISS? Yeah, exactly. So there are seven astronauts aboard the ISS right now. And there's been a bunch of discussion about what could you do? Could you send up maybe SpaceX? But SpaceX has... Um, uh, very specific spacesuits that they uh, make per person, so they don't have a general spacesuits that they could use for other astronauts. So it's been a real discussion about how do we do it? Are they stuck up there? Would they be stuck for how long? Um, but they do actually have a second Soyuz that could be ready uh, for flight as early as I've heard, uh, February 19th. So they would be maybe stuck there for a little while, but not not too long. It's um, It really emphasizes the difficulty of of spacecraft and the extreme environment in space because this is you know your car breaks down gets a flat tire you can call a tow truck or something but if you get stuck in space um it's a bit harder to to deal with and right now they're still considering last i read anyways um so maybe there's a news release coming out right now proving me wrong they're still considering taking three astronauts back um on this damaged soyuz i don't know which three but um, wow. it could it could be could be there's also they could wait until february i they believe they do have a good amount of supplies and a real surprise they're actually uh, um on nasa still going ahead with a uh, a spacewalk um I believe uh tomorrow wednesday so their real issue here is just getting back and whether you want to jump back in this thing to get back home yeah yeah it's how sort confident of, you know, what, <laughs> how confident how, are you they can do the body work before they uh get it i mean would that be sufficient enough i guess it depends on how how much damage is done but any idea if they could fix it to do that I mean, you, you, it could. They think they could fix it, and I would tend to believe them because these folks have a yes. lot of expertise in engineering and and astronautics. I mean, if it was me, I would say no. <laughs> yeah, really. I don't Go out and I apply the patch; it. it'll be fine. Once the patch um, is on, it's all good. And this is an really, older yeah. space. This is an old stalwart. This is an older air uh, cap uh, craft, right? This has been around for, with them for a while. The, this type of aircraft. Yeah, yeah. The Soyuz has been around for a while. This is the Soyuz MS-22 uh, and 23. Um, so right now we're looking at crafts that were built by, um, you know, in, in a very sturdy, sturdy manner. Uh, it was, you know, meant to withstand uh, some difficulties. So they're, you know, the Soyuz spacecraft uh, is a Russian craft. It's been a real workhorse for NASA um, and, you know, of course, the Russian Space Agency. It's it's an interesting craft. It actually has three little parts um, stuck together. And it's Soyuz MS is the latest version in a long, long line of very mm -hmm. successful, very successful crafts. So it, it's not like um, a brand new design that's just been put up. It has been tried and tested extensively. And so if, if they say they believe it can get back, I I would tend to tend to believe them, but it is it is very risky because of this extreme environment. And like I said, it wasn't leaking just anything; it was actually leaking ammonia coolant and um, what kind of other damage might be inside, what they might need to do to repair it. Um, I'm not sure uh, that mm. they have they have 100% decided on a plan forward. <laughs> but um, uh, stay tuned. No yeah, there there are some definite things that have failed. There's no functioning external uh, radiator, so there could actually be some overheating on it. It's got a lot of really cool 
exciting issues about it. So I would say just watch this interesting space and wow. uh, fingers this, crossed for everybody it, up there. This sounds like it could be another Ron Howard movie. Uh, Dr. Elena Hyde has been with us and uh, talking about what's going on in space with uh, the International Space Station and the Soyuz capsule that's attached to it. Uh, Director Alan Carswell, Observatory Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University. Elena, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, and uh, fingers crossed for a happy ending to this movie. Prime Minister Trudeau and the provinces still back and forth on uh, what they are doing in regard to health care. The Prime Minister has said simply giving the provinces uh, uh, money and into their demands on money won't guarantee improvements to Canada's uh, strained health care system. He has said uh, the provinces need to commit to reforms. What are those reforms? Who decides what the reforms are? Are those reforms that the provinces have the ability uh, to implement. Let's bring in Peter Grab, professor of political science, McMaster University, and is with us now. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, thanks. Hope you are, too. Uh, so I, I know you're not, uh, obviously you're a poli-sci professor, you're not in, in the medicine, in the medical industry and such, but you know, we're, we're hearing a lot of buzzwords and such, and I'm trying to dig through all of this and, and find out where this is going. Obviously the provinces are demanding more money. The, the prime minister has said that's not the answer. We need to find reforms. Where do those reforms come from? Are they, uh, is that up to the, the provinces to come up with a reform? And from what the provinces reforms I've seen, um, they don't seem to jive with, with the Canada Health Act or, or, or who has control over the hiring of the amount of doctors or nurses or how they get paid or how much they get paid, whether there's private uh, influence in any of this. So where do reforms come from? How do we start this? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, when you have, uh, you know, across the provinces, people looking at what's happening in those healthcare systems, and they're looking at what's happening also, uh, you know, in other uh, similar countries in terms of what uh, have been effective mechanisms to improve the quality of care and to control costs. So, you know, you come up with, with a series of reforms. So for a long time, there's been this real big push to have the development of health teams as a way of, you know, producing better primary care for uh for citizens, but also maybe finding a way of uh, controlling costs because not all the you know practices are being given by expensive physicians. Some are being given by other members of those teams who are maybe remunerated differently, for instance. So, you know, that would be an example of, of a health reform that's been around for a couple of decades and which provinces have, you know, tried with varying degrees of success to put into place, but, you know, are, are difficult to do too because you're running up against a series of professionals who are also protecting their turf and their livelihoods. And so uh, it's not like uh, you can wave a magic wand uh, and see the result that you want. Uh, again, in most provincial health systems, there's been you no know, attempts to move in this way. And, you know, sometimes the results haven't been as conclusive as they thought from looking in other places. You know, with the, the complaints, for instance, that in provincial health teams, uh, the doctors are now working less <laughs> once they're in that kind of form of, of, uh, uh, of practice. So, uh, but that's you know the, you know where where these reform ideas come from is really from observing what's been done in other places when they face similar challenges of improving the quality of services while uh, constraining cost. How does the Canada Health Act help or hinder any changes or reforms? Does it? Uh, well, I mean, I think we usually talk about how uh, the Canada Health Act maybe hinders reforms because it requires that for. Uh, you know, uh, for health services to receive uh, public subsidy, they have to be performed in, in particular manners. And that, you know, will limit, for instance, uh, the role of certain uh, private sector providers in, in providing services. Um, you know, again, the Canada Health Act can also help in terms of uh, developing reforms and in preventing, you know, resources from flowing out from uh, systems where they're most uh, efficiently provided. So, it's a complex uh, tool. I mean, it does limit the degrees of freedom, but in some cases, in, in limiting those degrees, uh, it's not just about frustrating change. It can also uh, prevent certain kinds of changes that are ultimately beneficial to a small number of health providers, but don't really make sense in terms of the overall performance of the system. Peter Graff with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, trying to keep the conversation going on uh, how we resolve health care issues uh, moving forward. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you too. 
If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Obviously, uh, lots of changes uh, in world order as we see the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where that has led uh, the uh, Chinese uh, Communist Party and their aggression within China and the rest of the world has uh, made people rethink where they are uh, with military spending. Canada just announcing uh, purchasing uh, jet aircraft uh, that, my goodness, I think we've been talking about this for 100 years, uh, it seems. Uh, But last week, uh, Japan announced it would be giving its military the biggest boost since World War II, and that in response to the aggression of China and Russia's behavior on the world stage. Uh, And now North Korea. Let's bring in Dr. Stephen Nagy, Senior Associate Professor in the Department of Politics and International Studies, International Christian University, and is a research fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and visiting fellow with the Japan Institute for International Affairs and with us now. Stephen, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. Good morning. I'm from Tokyo. Thanks, Scott. So uh, we remember, uh, well, we don't remember, but uh, uh, relatives told us, uh, uh, ancestors and such, that post-World War II, uh, Japan really changed its strategy when it came to military, decided to go more into industry and, and, and developing economy and such. What's changed? What's different now? So what we saw in the post-World War II, World War II period, Japan adopted a uh, uh, what's called Article 9 of the Constitution, which gave up the right to use force as an instrument of foreign policy. And since that time, it's used um, ODA, Overseas Development Assistance, and Foreign Direct Investment and Diplomacy as a way to deal with the challenges in the, in the region. The problem is, is we have our North Korean friends that are building you know, weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons, biological weapons, chemical weapons. We have its neighbors, China, threatening Taiwan, uh, trying to take islands from um, from Japan, and of course, really trying to really fundamentally change um, the region's security architecture in the way that Russia has tried to change the security architecture by invading Ukraine. And it's a tough neighborhood. And right now, hmm. Japan has gone through a rethink, and they are going to change how they look at the region, and, and they're going to build some more defensive capabilities. Uh, as you said, a tough neighborhood. So was there something that was a trigger here, or is this a culmination of all of this, whether it's North Korea, whether it's you, you talked about the sensitivities around Taiwan and, and the, obviously the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Is this the sum of all parts? How do you make this decision? Because it is a turn of events. Well, Japan's been looking at the regional security environment and how it, it's like, a, you know, that, that saying of a slow boiling frog. You, it's, once it's boiled, you, mm. you don't know that, you know, you've been boiled. And I think that Japan wants to prevent that from happening. It's looked at the region. It's getting tougher and tougher. And watching Russia's invasion of the Ukraine really has sent home the message that this could happen in Japan's backyard and that they can no longer use their um, Article 9 and this pacifist approach to dealing with these neighbors, that has to have a much more forward-leaning, um, defensive uh, approach to uh, dealing with North Korea, China, and Russia by working with the United States and also working with Canada. And I think that's important. They're not just looking to the United States. They're working with Canada, Australia, India, and many countries because they understand that they can't do it alone. How is the rest of the world reacting to this? Because it's a different set of of allies now, and, and great to see. Um, has the has the tone of all of the allies changed? Do you think? I think that um, the Canadians, the Americans, Australians, uh, Europeans, Southeast Asian countries, they welcome Japan's more forward leaning approach to security and defense within the region. China, this will only they'll only double down on the propaganda that you know they've been spewing out over the past 40 years that Japan's remilitarizing, that it's an aggressive state. And South Korea is a little bit more nuanced. Their conservative side understands the security challenges, and they would just like some reassurances, but I think that they are largely on the same page of the book as the, as the Japanese. But the progressives in, in South Korea look at this with great suspicion, and they see Japan really in some of the same ways as China. So there's a mix in South Korea and China, but I think um, globally, uh, the world broadly um, welcomes Japan's uh, investment because they understand it as, as, as a good uh, member of the international community. How do you think China is going to react to this and the uh, the increase in spending and, you know, from obviously someone who's, you know, they've had a clear different direction since after the Second World War. How do you think, how are they going to react to this? They already reacted through their um, spokespeople, um, 
calling Japan, um, you know, that they've, uh, uh, they're stewing lies about China, that they have, use, they're using resources to uh, contain China, that they are the lapdog of the United States. And these are very much um, you know, common memes that they've been using for 40 years. But they're likely to um, uh, communicate to the Japanese government and to Japanese businesses how unhappy they are. I wouldn't be surprised if they um, engage in some off-the-books uh, economic coercion on Japanese businesses so that it will come back and send a message to the Japanese government that, hey, the Chinese are not happy. If you continue down this road, we're going to affect your business footprint. And, you know, as Canadians, we've experienced this after the arrest of the Michaels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if they um, put more pressure on Taiwan as well. Yeah. Where do you think that is going? Is this coming to a head or is this just standing your ground? Well, I think that the priority of the Chinese government is to um, continue to develop its economy, to deal with the real severe economic slowdown in the country, COVID, um, and that they prefer a peaceful reunification with Taiwan. But if the Japanese and other countries continue to strengthen their security presence within the region and strengthen their bilateral relations with Taiwan, that the um, Communist Party of China could make the decision of, of saying that we need to uh, forcefully reunify with Taiwan as soon as possible. I don't think it's the chance is high, but I think that is their calculation if the trends continue as they are. Dr. Stephen Nagy with a senior associate professor, Department of Politics and International Studies, International Christian University. Stephen, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Merry Christmas. It is 427 News on the way. You know, I didn't want to talk about this, but uh, I guess he's he's done something that has everybody talking again, so I have to. I know, I'm as bad as everybody else. Uh, Elon Musk, as you know, or may not, maybe you didn't know, because we didn't talk about it on the show, because we didn't care. Uh, He had a poll whether he should step down as CEO. Maybe he should have had a poll that just said, should I just shut up? Uh, But step down as CEO, and the majority said yes, so apparently that's what he does. Uh, And and I guess what mesmerizes me, baffles me at the same time about all of this stuff is, you know, we were just talking to uh, last hour um, in regard to what's going on in space. Dr. Elena High, Director Alan Carson. Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University, and and talking about the International Space Station. And like SpaceX, his company has been up there like 20 times transporting stuff and people back and forth. Uh, You know, there's an issue with the uh, uh, leaking uh, uh, Soyuz rocket up there. They were even going to use SpaceX to go up and get them, but that's not going to work. So, you know, it's amazing that we can talk on one hand about this guy, uh, you know, as literally a pillar of what NASA is doing in space uh, and obviously commercialization of the electric vehicle with Tesla. Why the hell is he doing any of this? I just don't get it. But uh, I think this is more about personality than it is productivity. Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. He's with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott. Yeah, I've been asking myself the same question. Why? Why would he, considering all he's accomplished uh, with his other companies, he's literally rewritten the rules for the space, uh, for, for you know, space, yeah. low-Earth orbit, deep space, uh, for the EV industry, electric vehicle industry. And then he goes and buys Twitter and essentially blows it all <laughs> up. Wow, I'm still sick in my head, too. Do you think he's just bored? Uh, you know, I, I liken it to uh, a person with, way too much money going out and buying a bauble like me maybe a supercar or a hypercar you know he comes uh, home it's this bright orange wedgy thing that you know screams to everybody on the street look at me <laughs> pay attention to me and i think twitter is kind of like that it's the technological equivalent of a, of a lamborghini or a ferrari i think he he wanted the biggest megaphone he he bought the biggest megaphone and now that he has it in his hot little hands i think it's dawning on him that maybe it's a little more than he expected maybe he needs to go take some driving lessons for it so there's a lot of chatter about obviously him replacing the ceo stepping down and then as you read deeper into the article it's like well he's talking about this over time <laughs> it's almost yeah. like i'm being sucked in by donald trump again <laughs> um so it, it feels like it, is is this is this the answer finding another ceo and is there someone else out there that wants the gig 
I think if this were anyone else, I'd say, sure, because most mature companies that are owned by mature people, eventually they bring in someone, an adult in the room who has the skills, who has the track record to run the company, grow it, do the right things for it. Um, and then they kind of step back and they just, you know, hold, you know, they, they, you know, they still own the company, of course, but day to day, they're not involved. They're not micromanagers, but this is Elon Musk. And we've seen him do this at every other one of his companies to a lesser degree. You know, he's, he's the guy when Tesla ran into uh, a production line crunch, he went and he slept on the factory floor and he implored his workers to do the same with SpaceX. He would work 24 hour days uh, in the lead up to the first crewed mission in the lead up to the first orbital mission. Like, so this is a guy that, that has done this before. But what's different here is that there, there, there's no vision. There, you know, we're not going into yeah. space. We're not revolutionizing the EV industry. Uh, he and he seems to kind of skid from one ridiculous decision to another. And and the latest thing is now he's essentially handed decision making authority over to polls. Every time he wants to make a big decision, he just throws up a poll. It's like his 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 binky or his magic eight ball. And you're Elon Musk. What are you doing? So, theoretically, he's great at imagining and building stuff, but he's not necessarily good at fixing something. Is that accurate? I think it is. I mean, we know that he's, he studied engineering at Queen's uh, here in, in Canada. And so, you know, this guy has an engineering background. He's very good at putting teams of engineers together and, and having them solve some pretty vexing problems. You know, reusable rockets at SpaceX. No one had done that before. And he led the team that did that. But I don't think he is a truly great engineer in his own right. I think he's good at leading those teams or at least putting the resources together. But but he doesn't have those skills. And I think also when you translate that engineering mindset over from a rocket company or a car company to a social media company, I think it's a very different thing. In other words, he has to treat Twitter differently than SpaceX, differently than Tesla, but he isn't. He isn't adapting his approach. And I think he's realizing that a company like Twitter is very special, demands kid gloves. Uh, and when he doesn't get what he wants, he you know basically goes thermonuclear, sharpens his knife and starts firing people. Uh, I think he's frustrated with just how different Twitter is from anything he's ever experienced before. Do you think the people at SpaceX and Tesla are going, well, what if something goes wrong here? This guy's <laughs> going to lose it. Yeah, they certainly are worried. In fact, if you look at um, at at Tesla in particular, a lot of investors of the company are very concerned because he used uh, his holdings in Tesla to leverage the financing for the deal to buy Twitter. So event investors are essentially saying, well, if Twitter goes down, it's going to pull Tesla with it. And already its share value is down two thirds from its highs last year. And it continues to sink as Elon Musk sort of twists in the wind with Twitter. So uh, Tesla is very directly affected by everything that happens at Twitter. Uh, it's directly affecting Elon Musk's net worth. He's no longer the world's richest man. He's now, now only the second richest man, and that number continues to go down. And I think you know, the truth of the matter is, if you're working at SpaceX or, or Tesla or uh, Neuralink or the Boring Company, two of his other companies that he heads, uh, you're, looking at the, at, you're looking at yourself going, he's no longer paying attention to us. He's distracted. He's basically being consumed by Twitter thankfully there are adults in the room at spacex and tesla but what if something happens what if they do need true leadership elon musk isn't around to provide it and i think he's finally reached the point where he has spread himself too thin uh we've often talked that twitter was kind of on its way out before donald trump jumped on board and that was sort of a rejuvenation uh if you carmy were given the hands or the reins rather of twitter what would you do where would you go what direction uh, the first thing that I would do was I would I would uh, put the brakes back on on content moderation and online safety because that is the one big limitation that essentially stands in the way of Twitter and the revenue that it needs to survive. Advertisers have left the platform and most of them aren't coming back simply because it's no longer a brand safe environment. So you've got to fix that because otherwise you can't pay the bills. Second of all, I would look at Twitter Blue, which is the subscription um, uh, product or this offering that will provide uh, user-provided revenue. In other words, so that they don't just have to rely on advertising. Well, you know, Elon Musk has essentially been, you know, he launched it, then he pulled it down, then he relaunched it again. There's no strategy to Twitter Blue, and that's going to cost them as well. So, so uh, bring back moderation and, and bring back advertisers 
figure out Twitter Blue so that that fixes your revenue problem. And now you actually have a financial base to stand on. Uh, and then we'll see what happens. But right now, if he doesn't fix his business problems, six months from now, we aren't going to be talking about Twitter in the present tense. We'll be talking about it in the past tense. Hmm. Carby Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist. What would you do if uh, you were Elon Musk? Apparently, the gig might be open. Uh, Carmi, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We remember uh, when uh, Canadians were stunned to see CTV news anchor Lisa Laflemme be shown the door. And uh, now um, I guess there's a report and uh, Michael Melling is out uh, from uh, his responsibility in the newsroom, moved to a different department uh, as of all of this. And I want to talk about that and the Royals as we bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thanks for having me on, Scott. All right, so I ended up, uh, my wife was watching a bit of the Harry and Meghan thing. I didn't realize I was watching it. <laughs> and I saw, I didn't. I thought it was like a, sh- a magazine show on it. It was like CBS Good Morning, and this we were just covering it. Anyway, next thing I know, I was sucked in. So, uh, but I, I remember seeing one point of it, and I just saw a bit of the last episode, I think. And they said, um, I think what Harry uh, and Meghan were, were putting forth was that this was a, a huge missed opportunity by the palace to, uh, uh, you know, move some of those uh, systemic racism conversations forward and what have you. Because I know uh, pretty much the palace has been benefiting from this. People are kind of pooping on on Harry and Meghan for, for this show. But, you know, I couldn't help but think, yeah, like what an opportunity missed here by having uh, this woman of color as part of the family, considering where we've been with the royal family in the last several weeks. You know, it's interesting. The palace has been doing the, the same thing the same way for centuries. And you can tell I'm in the car here, so there goes an ambulance. And um, they can't turn on a dime to palace. They're just not built like that. I think that they discuss things. I think it's got to go through several levels and several hierarchies. And sometimes they just don't, they just think things will blow over. And by keeping a stiff upper lip and not dignifying anything with a response, I think it's sort of been their MO for decades. But I think you have a point. You know, it doesn't always work that way. And, uh, and maybe they thought, well, if we start doing things now to show that we're not racist, maybe there's just, you know, people look at that as virtue signaling and they, they won't take it seriously. I think there's a lot of things that they probably all got tangled up with about with that whether they should move forward with, um, you know, showing that, you know, the palace does not have racist leanings. And sometimes you get tangled up in these things, it leads to inaction. I have a gut feeling you're going to see them back in the palace, the two of them. I don't know why, I just think that. But anyway, let's move on to the Lisa LaFlemme well, uh, thing. Coming up, Scott. Yeah, exactly. There you go. All right, so um, independent review. Do we know anything different for the fans that uh, loved this anchor and watched her for so many years? Anything new here? Any, what stands out? You know, what stands out is that Michael Melling wasn't really fired. Uh, he may have probably been suspended, probably with pay, uh, during this time, and he was shifted into another department. So here's the thing. If there was a bad sort of like vibe in the newsroom because of Michael Melling, what is to say that this won't be the same sort of thing in this other department that they've sort of shifted him him off to? And it's interesting that they did fire him. So he must have had something in his contract or there must have been a lot of negotiations behind the scenes, Scott, that sort of kept him in within the CTV fold. Maybe they really felt that he is a good guy, but being in the on the network side, on the news side, really wasn't the place for him. And maybe being more on the business side was a much better fit. So it's interesting to see that they liked his skill set. The delivery was left wanting. And here they are having him in another department. But really, he will be under the microscope. So he will have to watch his P's and Q's because people will not hesitate to, uh, you know, go down that same road unless you know, this is just showing that he is sort of a protected guy within the CTV fold, and nothing can really happen to him. So do Canadians know why she was fired? Will we ever know that? No, I don't think we'll ever know that. And I think they'll, they'll just keep us guessing and, 
you know, they'll be fine with us surmising, you know, was it because of age? Was it because of her salary? Was it because she put like a little bit of purple in her hair? Um, you know, I think that that has sort of been uh, beaten to death. You know, this narrative really ran worldwide and they could, just could not get their arms around it because they weren't truthful up front. And this by telling us that Michael Melling is now within a different department, within CTV, I think what they're hoping to do is close this chapter for good. Uh, and more respect in the newsroom needed. Are we, do we, are we to assume that that now has been fixed? You know what? I don't think anybody assumes that it's absolutely been fixed. I think that everything like this is a work in progress. Um, we'll never know what goes on behind the scenes. You know, there's this TV show on Apple TV called The Morning Show, and behind all that sunny disposition and those smiles is often turmoil. And that's not to say that that's what's going on at your morning, but I think that, you know, what happened um, has hopefully been dealt with as much as it can be, but what's more important is the go-forward attitudes and how the staff is being treated. Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. As always, Alyssa, thanks for your time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. You certainly remember what happened with the Freedom Convoy and what an absolute, um, I can't use that word on, on the radio, uh, what it turned into. You know, I'll say circus. Uh, and there was uh, lots of question as to when it was finally cleared using the Emergencies Act, if a plan was in place to make sure that it doesn't happen again. There's already rumors of uh, 2.0 Freedom Convoy coming, uh, although they say that this is a olive branch edition of the convoy. I'm not sure what that means. Let's bring in Phil Gursky, President Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Distinguished Fellow, University of Ottawa's National Security Program and former CSIS analyst. He's with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. I'm curious what term you wanted to use but couldn't use on the radio. <laughs> begins with an S. It ends in the word show. Let's leave it at that. Um, uh, Ottawa's new police chief says that they've already begun to prepare for a possible reboot of this. They've re, uh, they've secured infrastructure and equipment. Uh, the Privy Council office says it is working with the police uh, in, in, in through all of this. It, it, what do you see changing? Because we've been questioning whether there was a plan B in place clearly they've been working on something what are your thoughts here well there's no question scott that when something of that magnitude happens there are things that go sideways that you simply cannot predict and you're not in a position to prevent you learn from your mistakes whether you're in security intelligence law enforcement or dare i say journalism so they're going to look at what happened in january and february uh, see what went well, uh, see what didn't go so well, and they're going to adjust to it like all good law enforcement agencies do. So I-, I would expect a different performance this time around. They've got plenty of lead time because the people have announced months in advance they're going to be here. So they-, they can't say they were taken sort of blindsided by it. So the more time they have to prepare, uh, the more time they'll do it well. I already noticed there are bollards, concrete bollards on Wellington Street in Ottawa. So you won't see the same kind of gridlock outside of Parliament because they simply can't get past those bollards. So um, it appears they are planning for it. Does that mean there is a plan and there's someone involved or someone in charge, rather? Who is the leader? Who is the captain here? Is it the Ottawa Police Service? Well, this is the problem is that, you know, there are serious jurisdictional issues when it comes to Ottawa as the nation's capital. Uh, Wellington Street is part of Ottawa, so that would be an Ottawa Police Service jurisdiction. But, you know, going back to the Nathan, the uh, killing of Nathan Cirillo back in 2014, we did have confusion over, over you know, who was sort of uh, controlling things. The RCMP was involved, Senate was involved, Parliament was involved. I hope this time that there's some kind of agreement uh, in advance to say, okay, uh, when this happens, this is your sort of part of the turf and this is our part of the turf. Again, you learn from your mistakes and you do things better. So I'm going to go on a, on a limb here not having access, of course, to the inner inner dealings, but to say that there's a lot of talks in place to make sure that the same types of jurisdictional headaches, we'll call them, do not reoccur in February of next year. That being said, we haven't heard anything in uh, what's been reported here about the RCMP, the OPP, or the Senate police, whether they're involved in these discussions or not, or do we assume they are, or is this just a discussion with the OPS, the Ottawa Police Service? 
Oh, I think that a lot of jurisdictions are involved. Like I said, Ottawa is a very complex environment when it comes to policing and national security. So uh, if I were running the ship, I would certainly would want all the players around the table. They can all speak their piece and then we can decide what's the best way forward. So I would be very surprised if, in fact, we don't have all hands on deck to figure out uh, the best way forward to deal with this potential disruption in February and, and, and try to make sure it doesn't go south as badly as it did in February of this year. What do you think they know intelligence-wise? The phrase came out, this is the olive branch edition. Clearly, the convoy knows they're not going to get away with what they got away with last time due to lack of of organization and such. They're going to be prepared this time. What do you think this one's going to look like? It's hard to say. Uh, The fact that they have said it's an olive branch seems to indicate to me that the leadership doesn't want a repeat of what happened in February. Although, let's let's remind your listeners, there was no real violence that happened in February. But you can't account for everybody. I mean, does a, does a leadership keep control over all the people? What if a person with no affiliation shows up just to make a point? Even if they're, they they control as tightly as they can, you can never rule out the possibility that someone wants to make a statement and is going to ignore uh, your desire to keep it peaceful and do something stupid. So they can only go so far. And I'm pretty sure when you talk about intelligence, I'm pretty sure I can't I can't say for certain, Scott, obviously, but I'm pretty sure my former colleagues might uh, might have a few ears and eyes open on this one. Uh, obviously, uh, in those that came after this, they were just sort of rolling protests, came in one side, go out the other. Is that how you see them handling this? Do you think the, the main, um, I guess, effort here is to not let them assemble? I think so. And I think if, in fact, if these people just want to make a statement, uh, they'll do so peacefully. They'll set up set up very briefly and they'll move on because they don't want to repeat, obviously. But again, it's those unknown elements that may glom onto this movement and try to say something different. But I, I think we'll see a very different scenario play out in February. The police will be better, better prepared. The public certainly doesn't want to see a repeat of what happened. And I don't think the organizers want that either. So fingers crossed, um, you know, hope springs eternal. It'll It'll turn out for the best. Phil Gursky with us, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Distinguished Fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, former CSIS analyst. Phil, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, sir. If I don't see you, have a Merry Christmas. Let's talk everything money, uh, inflation, the economy, and health care, and the costs of all of the above. Marvin Ryder with us, Professor DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University, and with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well and glad to be with you. Marvin, I'm trying to dissect this whole uh, situation around healthcare, and I know you're a business prop, but you know, this is all money, so perhaps you can guide me here. Um, obviously, the provinces are asking for more money. The pro- prime minister has said, I want to see reforms, uh, where this money is going to go, how things are going to be different, not putting good money after bad and such. What are these reforms? And are these reforms possible without changing the system. Uh, reform, I would say, equals template. So we're talking about changing the template reforms. What are these reforms? And, 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 are there, and are the province's hands tied trying to implement any reform because of where we are with the Canada Health Act? Sure. Well, can I try a couple of things with you here? First, yep. I think I'd like to call them outcomes rather than, quote, reforms. Uh, uh, basically, what Mr. Trudeau is saying to the province is, let's suppose I give you $20 billion what do I get in exchange? Are you going to promise me that every citizen in your province will have access to a primary care doctor? Are you going to promise me that you're going to cut uh, waiting times for certain surgeries in half? What are you going to give me in exchange for my cash? And I don't think that's absolutely an unreasonable situation to ask. Uh, As you said earlier, you don't want to throw good money after bad. So what what do you need? And part of this also calls a bit of a bluff here. if, if the whole problem is cash, well, provinces, some of you are actually running surpluses now. Some provinces are actually sending out checks to their citizens as a sort of a, here's how you get through this high inflationary period. If you have- They're, all, send, cash, they're all sending out cash, Marvin. They're all right. sending out cash. Right. right. But if you have money for that, why don't you have problem uh, money for your healthcare system? So this is what he's asking for. Now, again, can I share that, um, I guess it would be- 15 years ago, a different prime minister, a different government in power, there was a big health care summit. And at that time, what the federal government agreed to do was reduce its tax rate on citizens to allow provinces to increase its tax rate on citizens. Citizens wouldn't feel any different between the two, but this would give them more money for health care. 
part of the problem is 15 years ago, you had a whole other group of premiers in power, and that is now money under the bridge, so to speak. They're not getting any credit for this. So, you know, what is it you want to do with this? And, and I'm going to be, again, if you will, on the side of Mr. Trudeau. I'm not sure all of this is a money problem. If I could wrangle up $20 billion tomorrow, you've then got to go out and hire people. In some cases, you've got to build facilities or expand facilities. This is not a problem that can be fixed overnight and with more cash, but it is certainly part of the solution. You bring up a very uh, valid point. Can't be fixed with more, more cash. Is the solution from the provinces more cash because they're unable to reform the system? The only way you can fix this system, which constantly runs on cash, is to feed it more because you're not allowed to change anything else, whether it's the number of doctors you hire, um, w- whether it's the amount you pay them or, 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 or that sort of thing. A lot of this comes through the Canada Health so is you know under the system we have the only way the provinces can fix it is to add more cash unless you want to reform it and use other means than cash but that takes changes to the template which nobody wants to do right well can i, can I say it again just a little differently i think cash becomes the easiest thing to ask for if if i say look i've got a system it's not working well for me i'm not getting the outcomes i want but if you gave me more cash i'm sure i could find a way to make it work uh, you know, it's just an old argument. More money always allows me to do more things. So I understand why the provinces are asking for that. But I also think this is not a one size fits all problem. In other words, mm. what's going on in British Columbia is not the same uh, problem that the people in New, New Brunswick are having. And that's not the same problem that the people in Quebec are having. Now, earlier this week, Prime Minister Trudeau met with the premier of Quebec. And for good or bad, at the end of that meeting, the premier of Quebec came out and said, hmm, I think we can find common ground here. I think we can find a way forward. Now, he didn't reveal the the essence of their discussion, so we don't know exactly what the two of them talked about. But here's a premier who says, oh, I see where you're coming from. I think I can give you this if you give me that. And I think that's the attitude we have to come into this with. Uh, some may call that dividing and conquering, but I digress. Um, is the, the elephant in the room that we're not talking about is more elements of privatization. And of course, nobody likes to talk about that because everybody thinks if you're going to have a heart attack, you got to throw down a credit card. But we already have this within our system, but nobody seems to want to talk about it. It would seem obvious you want to pull back on the cash, let involvement more in other private areas where there can be efficiencies and give some relief to the healthcare system. But again, we don't want to have those discussions about real template reform, changing the way we do things. So the only way to do or to fix this monolithic uh, 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 system that we have is just to add more cash. Yeah, so again, let's let's be quite honest with ourselves here. There already is private health care. When I go see my eye doctor, I pay. When I go, so see why my are we so afraid to talk about that or add more of it in some way that will make it even more efficient? Right. Well, again, I don't know why we're afraid to talk about it because I pay my dentist, I pay my eye doctor, I pay a chiropractor if I need a treatment, and we're okay with all of that. I I think what we're worried about is what we'll call primary care. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. having the heart attack. Surely I don't have to go to a private clinic to have that done. I'm not sure expanding private care uh, solves everything, but where it might make a difference, for instance, is on diagnostic imaging, rather than getting in line for an MRI or a CAT scan, maybe we should be funding some some primary, uh, or excuse me, some uh, clinics on a for-profit basis who are willing to put it through. I certainly know there are some, not everybody, but some people who might be prepared to pay to get their pro, uh, service done faster. I know some Canadians who actually travel to the United States and pay to get their service done faster. Uh, I know snowbirds who go south and return with all the diagnostic images on a on a, a CD-ROM or a DVD hmm. and that are just as good quality. Again, I'm not sure that's the whole problem, but uh, it may be that we have to pick off pieces here and there, try different solutions for different problems. And that's the kind of discussion that should happen at the national level. But it's just easier, I think, for the premiers to say, here's the person, is the, the evil person in the room. Let's turn Justin Trudeau into the devil with horns. If he won't give me the cash, I can't do anything. To me, that's silly. Uh, you know, we, we are bright people. We should be able to figure ways out of this mess. 
Uh, exactly. Uh, how can you use words like reform and not explain what they are? Give examples of how can we do this? I mean, uh, again, it seems we're avoiding talking about something or the elephant in the room as opposed to just addressing. You know, we use fancy words like reform. What is it? What is the solution? One example of shouldn't we be going there? Yes. I think the answer is yes. So oftentimes with language, we, we raise it to the highest common denominator. You know, we need reform or we need uh, a fresh look at something. And you go, okay, do we throw everything out? What, what exactly does that mean? And it's not putting in the details. And that may be the better route to go on this is to pick two or three or four things and say, let's go after primary health care reform. What does that mean? How do we make sure that everybody has a family doctor? Or how do we find another way of treating the emergency so we don't have these code zeros and ambulances stuck at those sort of places? How do we deal with alternative level of care patients? These are older patients who find themselves in hospital. Unfortunately, they're not going to be able to return home, but we don't have a space for you in a long-term care facility. So there you sit and you, you basically occupy a bed when you're not really needing to be in a hospital. I think maybe if we didn't use the big fancy word reform and, and broke it into these smaller chunks with a very clear deliverable attached to each one, it would be easier then to make something happen. Marvin Ryder for Prime Minister, uh, Professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. He's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott Radley is with us. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am doing well, Scott. i got to tell you something funny before you jump in here. Yes. So uh, CHML does the Christmas Tree of Hope. You've been here, People have been hearing about it for days and days now, and it's a great thing. It raises money and toys for kids. And so every year, you know this, every year uh, there are toys that are dropped off, and they're all brought into the front lobby here at CHML. So when you yeah. walk in, you walk past this amazing mountain of toys that people have yeah. gifted towards people. It's amazing. I did have to laugh, though, because right on the top, one of the things that was donated among all the toys was a Keurig machine. <laughs> and I thought, that's, that's going to be wow. great for the kid who likes a nice, strong cup of coffee to get going in the morning before grade two. <laughs> <laughs> Look, mommy, I got a Keurig. <laughs> That's it. Give me some pods, would you? I need a, uh, yeah. Well, thank, you never know. Thank you to everybody hey. who donated, but I thought that was kind of funny. I don't, uh, maybe there was something else in the box that wasn't a Keurig. Maybe it was just the box. I don't know. But uh, yes, I thought. Uh, some- that being said, as Olivia has said to us, uh, the, diffis- the most difficult age for kids uh, to buy for is the teenage years. And yeah. uh, they're always buying for, you know, kids and toys and whatever. But babies uh, under one year and teenagers are what they always need the most of so stuff like that who knows maybe that's maybe uh, they found you know. the jackpot maybe that one will be the first thing gone and next year it'll be a big run on curings anyway fantastic <laughs> thank you, you to everybody because it was an All immense right. amount yeah. of toys it was great yeah it's great to see 900 chml.com to uh help us help the kids all right i'm reading your show sheet today yes. uh which is cool uh the united nations uh, biodiversity conference wants to tell us what to eat is this a step too far well, I love this. So give us a little bit of a sneak peek here. You got Sylvain Charlebois coming on. He's yeah. a great guest. Uh, what are you talking about here? Well, are you, are you, do, you, do you have to give up the cow, Scott? Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. So they're, they're having this conference and... Uh, Those damn farting cows again. Well, any, I thought the straws would help. Now it's the farting cows. Anytime you get a bunch of people together whose sole purpose, whose sole job seems to be like, they can't come to one of these conferences and not pass something. Right yeah. now, then they'd have to go home, and someone would say, "What did you do at the conference?" Well, uh, I, I couldn't sang, agree on anything. I sang karaoke in a hotel bar, but I don't <laughs> think that counts. So, you've got to come up with something, and you've got these countries. And one of the things that they proposed now, I don't think it passed, but they were well. We it's called the diet and overconsumption motion. That these these delegates were going to tell the world, "Here's what you can and can't eat," and I'm like. I understand that there are parts of the world where people don't have food, and I understand there are parts of the world where we have too much food. I get that. I just don't think that it's anybody's place as far as a a UN official to say, you know what, Scott Thompson, Uh, you had your one hamburger this week. Uh, that's, that's it for you. Uh, you're allowed one a month and you're allowed two pieces of chicken a month. And that's what you're going to get. Like this is, this is moving into some, I get that this is all about the environment and everything. This is moving into some like really, really, uh, so some areas extreme. Yes. That you're getting way too hands on in our day to day life. And some people will say, well, it's just what uh, proteins you're going to eat. 
Yeah. And when this thing passes, then they go, okay, so now we've got that. Now we can move on to something else. I don't, we need to tell these people, get out of our lives. Get out of our life. Do what you're going to do, but leave us alone. We don't need you to tell us what food we're going to eat every day. We live in a world of extremes. No matter what the issue is, you pick it, whether it's uh, climate change, whether it's energy, whether whatever it is, you pick it. We live in a world of extremes. There's no halfway. It's like me talking with Elizabeth May a while back and saying, why don't we direct all of our energy at coal? Because that's the biggest polluter in the world. That's what we can fix. Why don't we get everyone off coal? Can't do that. Uh, Too late for that. That was 20 years ago. Well, you said that 20 years ago. And if we'd built the pipelines then, we'd be in a different place. So, again, there is no solution. It's just a world of extremes. And this is more of the same. And you wonder why we have division in everything we do. Scott, this is mm-hmm. just an example yeah. where, uh, you've got again, you've got these giant government bodies, whether it's our government, whether it's in other countries, or whether it's the United Nations or kind of thing. And the old, it seems that for a lot of the time, and I, I say this about city council too, city council's purpose in life always has been, it's to pass laws. If city council was to go through a term of council and say, you know what, we only passed three bylaws because that's all we felt we needed to do to fix the city, people go, what have you done? You've done nothing. They have to pass bylaws. That's how they're measured. And so here you've got all these people together and they have to come up with something. They have to look like they're doing something. And so someone goes, well, let's let's control what food people eat. And someone else goes, better than anything else we got on the agenda, I guess. So sure, let's do that. I don't know if you should have made that sound effect with what we're talking about here, but I digress. Uh, all right. I'll save that one for the best of hit later. <laughs> there you go. All right. Uh, Scott Radley show coming up after the six o'clock news. Have a good one. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpayer and customer to have the last word. Yeah, I know everyone's been racking their brains trying to come up with ways to distract their kids over the holidays, but uh, if we're going to get as much snow as they're saying, I think we're looking at about eight hours of driveway clearing time per day. Merry Christmas! Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.